everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Peter Crone, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Well, we're good to see you. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on. Um, it's been some time coming. I think we originally connected on Instagram, perhaps? Um, uh, correct. I think I, yeah, I'd seen a couple of your actual posts and I was just inspired with the correlation between what you were discussing in the realm of money and sort of what I'm talking about in terms of spiritual freedom, you know, yes. and uh, yes. just definitely seemed to be a beautiful resonance there. So it was yes, nice freedom is, well, one of the ways we describe money is like an the ultimate instrument of freedom or an instrument of pure optionality, clearly yeah. only in a very pragmatic worldly sense. It doesn't give you spiritual freedom, obviously, but there is some connection there um, yeah. in the nature of freedom. So there's definitely an overlap. And I think people perceive money as a form of freedom, right? Until such time that they usually have sufficient amounts to realize, no, it's not. Right. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. There's, there's a bit of a, of a paradox there. Yeah, you, you can gain absolutely. a lot of worldly freedom only to realize that it's not um, true freedom, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So, um, it might facilitate freedom, but I think money tends to exacerbate whatever state you're currently in. Mm, yes. Right. So if you have internal freedom prior to having money, then for sure, 
you're going to see an enhanced experience of freedom in all arenas. But if, you know, and again, it's just an assertion, your internal state is more to do with anxiety, fear, concern, then I would assert that that is equally going to be exacerbated by virtue of having more possibility, but therefore seeing more of those experiences in more arenas. So right. it can amplify whatever state you're in. <laughs> yes, that's funny. I heard Tim Ferriss describe it once that money was a bit like alcohol. That it would, you know, if you're naturally kind of a good natured person, it might just give you a little bit more of that. But if you're dark and brooding and upset, then it's only going to kind of amplify that, that side of your being. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Yeah. Funny to hear you describe it similarly. Just, um, quick introduction. Cause we, this is a bit outside the sphere of what I typically talk about on this show, but I think it's incredibly interesting and it's these type of conversations and this thinking has been very transformative in my life continues to be transformative so um my hope is that it will be beneficial to the audience as well you sir are the mind architect correct and you help people remove suffering to discover freedom this is more of that internal spiritual freedom as we were describing um and you have a large following across a lot of channels how, who, who are you, Peter? How did you get into this work? How did you get into this vaunted position of, uh, you seem to be a, a free person and a happy person. And now you're educating others on how to do the same with themselves. How did you, how did you come to be in this position? I mean, the, the quip answer is that I uh, went through a shit ton of suffering. <laughs> um, you know, there's no greater teacher than adversity. So Uh, I for sure had my trials and tribulations growing up as a kid and in ways that I didn't fully comprehend at the time, they would be the precursor to who I've become today without stating the obvious, but certainly as it relates to the freedom that you're pointing to. So um, I had a series of events, some that were more sort of in the realm of awakening than others, but one in particular about 20 years ago where I was dating someone, she had left me and I kind of falling apart, desperate men doing desperate things, wondering how I could get her back. And eventually it took uh, six to eight weeks, but I, it sort of the, the epiphany that came from it was really a means by which I got to reconcile my fear of loss, hmm. which transpired or had accumulated over time by virtue of the fact that my mom had died when I was seven and my dad died when I was 17 and hmm. I was an only child. So I'd been orphaned before I was uh, officially an adult. And so in ways that at the time I wasn't fully aware, I had a very deep-seated fear of loss. And so the first time I met this particular woman who was at that stage of my life, I was still young in my 20s, felt like the, the epitome of love. I've subsequently learned that was not love. You know, it was, depending on how esoteric we want to go, it was really just my soul setting me up for success so that I could see the subconscious limitations that were still binding me. So she was kind of the catalyst for that to transpire. So Hmm. that was really what helped me become who I am to answer your question, which yes, the title, the moniker, the mind architect, I feel is accurate, but it's insufficient because it's it's self-declared. You know, I've been called a spiritual teacher, a happiness guru, and these are all equally to a certain degree accurate, but I felt they were contaminated with meaning. And so by generating Hmm. something of my own accord, it, it inspired curiosity. You know, mm. similar to your question, it's like, well, my knock there, that sounds cool. What's that? Versus if I walk around saying I'm a spiritual teacher, you know, people are 
it's it's mm. it's going to lead them to can be contaminated with their view of me as I'm walking around my house in robes and burning sage all day, you know, so <laughs> there's anything okay. wrong with that. <laughs> so the mind architect is just a placeholder for really what I would assert is an experience of possibility, really in love and freedom for people to resonate with and then see that as something they can aspire to and attain for themselves. Hmm. Wonderful. Wow. Thank you. The, the sense of loss you, you, said you struggled with and you, I guess saw manifest in the loss of this young lady at a young age. Yeah. Um, what can you just expand upon that a little bit? Like how did you going through that uh, adversity, I suppose, yeah. in what way were you able to identify that sense of loss? And then what, like, what are the actual, I guess this, this would be your first steps right into your spiritual journey as you dealing with that sense of loss. I'm yeah. sorry. The, uh, I guess, what, how did you describe it? A, a proclivity to feel a sense of loss? Perhaps? Yeah. So that was the, that was the transformative reconciliation for me. That was the distinction that I got to is that I was living in the fear of loss. Mm -hmm. And then to cut to the chase, I realized it was a fear of loss. There was no actual loss. Loss is right, a narrative okay. and it's a very strong one for humans. I help people with that a lot. But when I realized that I hadn't lost my parents, my parents had died. Yes, which may seem like it's a conversation about semantics, but it's important because, you know, someone's coding a piece of software, you know, and it's like right. in this particular piece of code that dictates the size of the screen or the color of the border or something. It's like you don't go, well, you know, don't worry about it. It's just T16 and make up some numbers. It's mm -hmm. like no, there's a specific piece of code that will give rise to the particular outcome you want. So mm -hmm. for me, I was living in the like the world occurred to me as though I'd lost my parents. That was my reality. Right. But when I shifted that and reframed that conversation, I didn't lose my parents. They passed. Right. And that's not to in any way negate the fact that I miss them. I love them. I was sad. They are organic feelings, primal experiences yes. that, you know, that are important to go through. But subsequent to my parents dying then to stay living in the narrative of loss meant that anything of value that came into my life whether it be in this case another person it could have been a client it could have been money in my bank account or stocks or whatever that i was perceiving as value mm -hmm. without me doing anything automatically had a subtext of the fear of loss mm -hmm. why because it was perceived value right so the the awakening moment for me, I can remember sitting at my desk, this is six or seven weeks after she had left, we were living together at the time. I had these incessant series of questions going around my head, like, where is she? Um, is she dating someone else? Will I see her again? Will I mm -hmm. find love like that? Sort of stereotypical questions that anyone mm -hmm. who's gone through the breakup or the loss of a partner can mm -hmm. you know, very well relate to. And it, I almost fell out of my chair when I realized the answer to all of those, the four questions at least I gave to you, was three simple words, which is, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know where she is. I don't know if she's dating anyone else. I don't know if I'll see her again. And I don't know if I'll find love like that again. Mm. And the cascade of relief, which in my world is now freedom and why it's my main mm -hmm. product, that went through my body on a very energetic and physiological way was something I'd never experienced before. And in a flash, I got two particular distinctions. One, the nature of life is uncertainty. Mm -hmm. 
the human brain designed to predict and protect is always trying to ascertain what's going to happen. You know, in lay terms, we're always trying to figure out, well, should I do this? Should I do that? What's going to happen? Mm -hmm. And that's an exhaustive, not to mention futile, at best speculative process, right? Mm -hmm. But the truth is we don't know. You and I could meet tomorrow. We could meet in a month. We could meet in 10 years. And we still won't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Aside from plans, but even those obviously can fall fall mm-hmm. by the wayside. So I got, that was the first distinction. Life is uncertainty. And then the gift that came with that is for the first time in my life, at the ripe old age of 29 or whatever I was, I was totally at peace with not knowing. Hmm. I found intimacy with the reality of life itself. Hmm. And it gets even more, for me, impressive because I had not spoken to that girl for about six weeks. We chatted a little bit for the first two weeks where I was doing like most guys, particularly who are like, come back, I miss you, da-da-da, all the desperate Mm. things (laughs) to no avail. And then six weeks of radio silence. Within 15 minutes of me having this revelation, this epiphany, and this realization, my phone rings and it's her. And now she's crying and she's like, I miss you so much. And at that moment, I fully got quantum physics. Wow. Yeah. That because is in ways that I, sorry. That is quite the synchronicity. Yeah. Or that to me spoke to entanglement theory, right? Because yeah. in ways that I previously was not aware, for which reason I can't be held accountable, which is why I don't live in a world of judgment, right? One of my quotes is, people can't be held accountable for that which they're oblivious to. So yeah. I was oblivious to the fear that I was living in that led to the series of events and the way that I communicated and behaved. I was a great boyfriend, but I overcompensated by being a perfectionist, which was my yeah. way of trying to mitigate the fear of loss but itself was inauthentic. So it led to, particularly for a sensitive woman, not feeling particularly seen or heard because I was really in a relationship with my own fear, not her, Hmm. right? So you start to see the mechanisms and the behavioral adaptations that we all have, but through no fault of our own, that's where we bring in compassion. But at that moment that I recognized life is uncertain and for the first time in my life, I was totally okay with it. I also saw that I'd never actually been available for the love that she genuinely had for me. And that's why as soon as I released my guard of self-protection, which was really, as I said, a compensation for the fear of losing her, I actually became energetically available to her, which is why the phone rang. Wow. So quantum entanglement and love, there is some parallel there. Yeah, which we could really put down to the word unity or the absence of the illusion of separation. That's beautiful because it's often actually the the term God is often described in the Neoplatonic text as that which unifies, that which creates yeah. solidarity, um, specifically yeah. in hierarchical structures. So that's very interesting. So much there. Well, wow, that is a very beautiful story with a lot of good <laughs> touch points. Yeah. Um, okay. Is that moment of realization where you say? I lost my parents is not equal to my parents died. Are you then separating kind of the narrative world from the ontological reality? Like, is that part of what this identification process is, is that we, even ourself is a story. Like we, the self is kind of a story. I don't know if I'm using the right term here, but I'm thinking that the ego, at least you're telling yourself a story about your place in history and your family and how you, 
connect to the world, but ultimately it is narrative. It's not ontological, yeah. right? Absolutely. Um, no, beautifully articulated. This is why I knew I'd enjoy our conversation. So the way I phrase it, I say who you think you are is simply a walking conversation. Okay. So who I was, and again, ways that I was oblivious to, was a walking conversation where one of the main pillars was around the insecurity of losing anything of perceived value. Wow. So that part of me got reconciled at that moment, which gave rise to a greater experience of freedom. Right. And so it's a victim narrative? Others. Sorry yeah. to interrupt. Was it a victim narrative in that way? You could argue that all narratives that belong to the ego and identity are by definition victim-oriented. Hmm. So for me, fear of loss. For somebody else, I'm not good enough. For somebody else, I'm a failure. It is a subtle negation to the fullness of who we truly are. Hmm. And so what we're denying is the realization of our own inherent qualities of worth, of freedom, of love, of power. Mm. So the ego tends to be based in negation. So that is, I am under the impression that I'm a victim of circumstance, but actually we're never a victim of circumstance. This is mm -hmm. one of my favorite mm -hmm. distinctions that hit me so hard. You're always a victim of perspective, mm -hmm. not circumstance. Right. It's a deeper but subtler and so much more empowering revelation because if you think you're upset because of your spouse or your boss or your parent, then yes, you are not only under the impression that you're a victim, but you're being a victim. Because right? if the power is out there, your boss upset you, your wife said something, your husband was a dick. Well, like, and that is the apparent source or the cause of your experience of life. Well, then now you have no choice but to be constantly a victim of circumstance, which is why people have control issues, because it's ipso facto, right? If I'm under the impression that I get hurt by circumstance, then what am I going to do? It's a survival strategy. I'm going to try and control circumstance because right. I don't want to be hurt. <laughs> right, right, right. Which is exhausting and futile and why most people's wow. adrenals are shot and they need whatever form of escape and medication. But wow. when you realize, no, I'm a victim of perspective and I am the one declaring that perspective, albeit the majority of it is subconscious and that's where the work comes in to take that which is unconscious and bring it to the conscious, right. you know? And that's where the empowerment comes in. And that's an entirely different approach to breaking free. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, you, as what came up for me there is you're describing people trying to control circumstances when they're acting from a place of fear, right? That is, Correct. that is primal and natural maybe to some extent, but um, we talk a lot, obviously we've talked a lot on the show about money and economics, but fiat, yeah. that's what fiat actually means, right? It's do this because I said so. Yeah. Um, and so this idea, right? we have like a fear, it's like a fear-based uh -huh. system. Um, and so I wonder if, you know, to what degree is, I'm always curious about this too, to what degree is it internally generated versus externally uh, influenced or incentivized? So let's say there seems to be feedback between kind of the mental layer and the social layer, obviously. Yeah, um, yeah and that's how most humans work, right? Is the That's what we could call either self-righteousness or self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like mm -hmm. depending on whether you look at it as a positive or negative, you know, self-righteousness, mm -hmm. I told you that would happen, right? Right. You know, versus, oh, I suck. And I knew that was too good to be true. Right. Two very common, you know, choices of language, but both speaking to 
the illusion that you're a victim of circumstance. And when things go your way, you know, there's pride. And when they don't, there's guilt. But these right. belong solely to the ego. Right. So it is fundamentally a fear-based mechanism, which is it's got its roots in scarcity. Yes. Right. This is why we have to make more of something. Right. Like whether it's money or an infomercial where if you're the first 500 callers, you get an extra toaster or whatever the fuck they're trying to give you. Right? <laughs> it's appealing to the fundamental illusion of inadequacy and scarcity. Right. So, yeah, but beneath all it, of that, there's nothing missing. Is it... Um, when you say rooted in scarcity, you're referring to the narrative structuring itself? Yes, but then why that's important relative to what you pointed out is the narrative gives rise to the thoughts and feelings, consequently actions and then outcomes. Mm. Right. So whether it's fear or whether it's a you know, belligerent husband in the house or yes. an overly controlling high school coach, the behavioral, th the behavioral actions that we're witnessing that we could say are inappropriate, abusive or deleterious to any relationship, yeah, fine, but that's too late down the chain of creation. It's still mm. being generated fundamentally by the narrative. Mm. As they say, hurt people hurt people, right? So the hurt is based in the narrative, not denying any traumas that people have gone through, sure. but just by virtue of the nature of time, anything that someone's gone through is they've gone through. It's history, it's past. Right. Yes. But the ego will hold on to circumstances, albeit old, because it justifies its own perspective of victimhood. Right. And so that continues that lineage. So by undoing all of that, then you're just left with again with freedom. And somebody who's completely free doesn't bring harm or abuse to anybody. Hmm. This is so good. I'm so rooted in scarcity. Uh, it's just the parallel I was yeah. drawing there is that's also what economics is rooted in, in a more practical sense, right? Where anywhere demand exceeds supply, we have pricing or we have conflict, basically. Yeah. And so yeah. it's also that maps directly onto this whole narrative architecture which is very useful right you do need the narrative architecture obviously yes saber tooth tiger jumps through the window your knowledge of saber tooth tigers maybe protects you actually maybe that's a bad example maybe that's more instinctual that's um, instinctual i mean there are primal patterns that are useful like if you're about to step onto the road you may have what you call a sixth sense it feels like the mm, presence yeah. of the car getting closer and you step out of the way but somebody who stands on the sidewalk, who's living in fear and there's no traffic around, that becomes dysfunctional. That's maladaptive. Right. Because maybe their brother was run over when they were a child. Right. right. So, again, they're using history as evidence for why they should live in a state of perpetual threat now. Mm. That's maladaptive. But to be wary of the fact that maybe you're walking down a dark street and you see someone coming the other way running at you. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to go, oh, it's just narrative. <laughs> you right, know, right, like, right, 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 you know, right. Of course, of course. Or run, right? So yeah. fight, flight, or freeze, you know, these are like, you can't get rid of them. They're part of the sympathetic nervous system. This is hardwired into us. Yes. What I'm pointing to is the suffering that's generated by our own narratives that give rise to the validation of our own identity. That's an entirely different realm. Right. So the narrative can have a maladaptive consequence what yeah. is what are the adaptive properties of narrative though because we're, we're using it for a purpose clearly i mean yes. i guess even communication dialogue is somewhat of a narrative structure right we're both using yes. an open source software called english to trade ideas yeah. absolutely so. so it's another form of intimacy right it's another form of relatability mm. and it's also what most people miss is it's a form of self-expression hmm. right so we are by design 
you know, one of the primal urges of any human or organism or mammal is the sense of belonging, right? Mm -hmm. And so we trade through stories, distinctions, uh, beliefs. Mm -hmm. This is where we feel communion with people. We feel relatability. Hmm. So narrative, when used from a place of authenticity, hmm. where it doesn't have any like preconceived ideas based on survival, then that's just a form of generosity almost, hmm. because it's like here, I'm sharing my view of life. And this is also the way that we evolve, right? Um, by having an accumulation of perspectives, we, we invariably are going to reach a much more efficient or workable perspective of a yes. group dynamic versus you know the more authoritarian or dictative view like this is the way it is and i say so right which yes is, yes which is sort of the subtext of most egos even in a quote-unquote loving relationship you know somebody usually takes on that dominant role oftentimes someone then being submissive in both places they're just reinforcing their own identities right so um, so narrative, to go back to your question anyway, maladaptive tends to be the survival instinct where we could say there's a positive adaptation. I would still, you know, caution there because you could say, let's give you an example. Somebody whose fundamental narrative is I'm not enough, mm -hmm. right? And everyone has, as far as I'm concerned, these 10 primal subconscious narratives of inadequacy, insecurity, or scarcity. This is the the format of my book, I'm going to speak to what I consider to be the 10 primal constraints of the subconscious that everybody has. And then just by virtue of life's hard knocks, growth with wisdom and age, you know, we slowly transcend them, hopefully. Many people go to the grave and they don't. And then we have the litany of forms of escape and suffering that people experience. Mm. But let's take a very simple one that everyone can relate to, which is I'm not enough. The maladaptive is, we would say, is, for example, the guy, the girl, who's not enoughness, particularly in that nucleus of a family or in the school, sort of, it's almost like a carcinogen emotionally, like you find, mm. you metastasize, you get out of that group, you run away from home, and you find a group where there's a sense of, a semblance of belonging. It could be a gang, it could be whatever. Mm -hmm. And so the I'm not enough in this particular environment, which is a, an experience of suffering where I'm being dismissed or rejected, so that person might get involved in a gang, then they, you know, the, the cascade of drugs, right? Like, and then eventually you become an addict and you're on the streets. Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. is perhaps one iteration we could call maladaptive of somebody's subtle narrative of I'm not enough that over time uh, eventuated in, you know, somebody who's doing meth on the streets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We could argue the more positive adaptation is the guy who was not enough who had to become the class president had to get all the a's had to go to the best college had to be the you know the the figurative quarterback who had the best girlfriend who mm -hmm. you know lives in the suburbs has got a corner office drives the latest mercedes and is as always in his gucci suits right mm -hmm. this is where people are both confused but wowed is they are both as equally unfree <laughs> <laughs> i can see that yes i've known right. those people yes <laughs> yeah and you can see it in yourself from you know things that we've touched on before but you know so when you're driven by code because we live in a binary universe or do a world of duality we abide by these apparent laws of which there are none but good bad right wrong up down da 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 positive negative so the i'm not enough negative heroin air meth addicts on the street i'm not enough positive i become you know six seven figure earning guy in a you know high position in a, in a company that's well to do and making a difference in the world mm -hmm. 
but energetically from the position <laughs> of what i assert is the only reason we're here which is for spiritual evolution not some sort of human linear progression then neither of them have gone anywhere and they mm. will still have to have the comeuppance and they will still have to face the quote-unquote constraints that they've yet to transcend wow fascinating absolutely fascinating this yeah. um a lot of things I wanted to say there. So perhaps there's a benefit to the narrative architecture itself as some kind of raw material for culture or mythology, even, right? We, we have yeah. to have the stories and transmit information and whatnot, but it's never, if you mistake that for the energetic reality or the ontology, of the situation, you can fall into these traps of yes. I'm doing yeah. math on the street or I'm driving the Mercedes and making all the money, like, and they're equally, <laughs> Inner, energetic traps that's so fascinating on the, yeah like i love that example because certainly for people with your aptitude and intelligence you can you know intuitively go wow that actually makes sense but on the surface even for someone as discerning as you you could very easily fall prey to the idea that the guy on the streets he's a bum and he's a loser versus the guy who's right. say like oh yeah he's made it he's successful right 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 <laughs> but to me from a different definition of success they are neither as successful and they're equally successful. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, when spiritual evolution is your metric for success, yes. right, you're evaluating them on a different standard. I, yeah. fall prey, I still fall prey to that one. I mean, I would think most people probably fall prey to that. Yeah. Um, it's also it's... hard to see through the veneer at times. People can present themselves very um, yeah. positively and gracefully, but uh, they can conceal a lot of that yeah. perhaps energetic trauma so and um, that would be just right there that behavioral adaptation is a survival mechanism mm. that's how slippery it is that the facade the pretense by which someone can present themselves however shimmering and however well executed is nonetheless an unconscious behavioral adaptation to the deeper feeling of inadequacy of which they're oblivious to incredible wow isn't it so deceptions for camouflage purposes but also entangled with self-deceptions perhaps at deeper levels yeah and, and uh, that's why compassion comes in because when you are oblivious to your own mechanisms of adaptation and survival you can't be held accountable now that does not in any way condone the behavior that might be a reflection of that but it it does at least give each of us the uh, the opportunity to have compassion for people who don't know better than what they know until mm. they do in which case then suddenly you have an immense amount of power and responsibility mm. but for wow. me i was the perfect boyfriend my facade you mm -hmm. know my my ambassador in the relationship was the quintessential guy kind poetry flowers for no reason you know taking care mm -hmm. of her needs before my own everything on the so even even the way that she left me the line was you love me too much <laughs> right and yet she couldn't articulate it because she was oblivious too to the mechanisms that were driving that, but it was an adaptation based on my own fear. So there was no, oh, he's a bad dude, even though we could argue in hindsight, being able to understand the mechanisms that my behavior was manipulative. Like yes. fundamentally, when you look at it, like, you know, in a, in a really realistic fashion, it was manipulative, well-intended because I love this person and the fear was around loss so people could understand that. But there was no accountability because it was oblivious. I was mm -hmm. oblivious. Then once I saw it, that's when 
there was this rush of power, not in the way that we typically see it today, which is an external form of power, exogenous mm. way of trying to control, which is still back to fear, mm. but really where I was totally okay. Not only okay with the fact that she wasn't there, but okay with not knowing my own fate. Mm. That's true freedom. That's it right there. That's the key, right? That There's an old, I think this is Musashi. He says the way of the warrior is the resolute acceptance of death. Yeah. And it's that, you know, life is yeah. uncertainty. Nature is entropy. If you want to yeah. hear God laugh, tell him your plans. Like these all kind yeah. of speak to that same fundamental yeah. reality that we're dealing with. Um, uh, this and, is why I love working with athletes because there's so much emphasis on results, right? Like, especially yeah. when you, I'm working, you know, with professional athletes in all sports and they're commanding millions of dollars. There's a lot at stake, right? And so before they know it, a child who was completely enamored with their sport that became second nature, something they literally played like mm -hmm. a sport, but the emphasis on that word and that experience that now became a job with an immense amount of pressure based mm -hmm. on an outcome. So that's the same thing about the warrior, right? Like even in Siddhartha, there's a great reference to that where they go and see the seer, the warriors, and they want to know their fate in battle. And the seer or the guru says, but if I tell you before you've even stepped into battle, you'll be living in fear prior to the event mm. itself. Mm -hmm. So, um, Paraphrasing. But so, yeah, for my athletes, one of the lines I use, I say, if you're okay with every outcome, you have nothing to fear. It's beautiful. It really is that simple. But man, does the ego and the narrative self try to undo yeah. all of that simplicity? Because wow. it's very, very attached to its own survival. Yes. Okay. And, because, and it has to be because there's no existence of it without its own narrative to reinforce its own idea of itself. Right. But the irony of the death of the ego is nothing more than the end of conversations. But it seems like literally life and death as a proposition. <laughs> Interesting. So if we, if we, Kill, I don't know if you advocate for this or not, but killing of the ego is the ego is a walking conversation. I think, as you described it earlier, what replaces yeah. that if you, if you end the conversation? So rather than kill, which tends to be sort of, I would say an old, you know, new agey spiritual mm. approach. Like I want to get rid of the ego. And to me, it's actually a process of integration, which really comes back to love. Mm. But the essence of who we are, call it soul or spirit. Again, we're using words to point to something. Mm -hmm. But the essence of who we are, which is the capacity to be with everything, mm. actually is the space of love that is sufficiently vast. It can allow what we're calling ego to equally be there. Mm. We just don't live from that spot. It's no different than, say, a parent who's at least in the non-traditional sense somebody's done the work so they're free they're really unconditionally loving they're not the you know disciplinarian or the abusive parent but like mm -hmm. a loving parent can make space for their child no matter the child's experience hmm. but the child isn't driving the car and deciding where they're going on vacation or paying the bills in the house right okay so that's, it's, a, that's a good analogy yeah that it's a much more loving approach to the ego, whereas the older sort of more traditional approach is like, yes, yeah, slay the ego. Right, right. Like <laughs> a loving acceptance. I say, I, I love sort of using these sort of almost Cohen-like quotes. And I say, yeah. you know, the person trying to get rid of the ego is the ego. Could take a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so more like the, 
Jungian shadow, perhaps it's better to integrate it than reject it or kill it. Um, You segue nicely into the next thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, You, you, you said that uh, what you thought was love that you had with the young lady and she left you that you realized in hindsight was not love. So what is true love? What, what is that? What is we we've, yeah. And I know this word in English, it's been like in ancient Greek, it has at least three versions. So I know there's like ways to break it down. There's different types of love, but I would just love to hear how you would describe it in the context of your thinking and your work. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it kind of goes back to you touching on God, right? Like, because to me, I say love is all embracing. Now that can be like, misconstrued uh some particularly women i feel because by virtue of their dna signature a little bit different than the male they are the nurturers the providers so invariably sadly a lot of women collapse love with tolerance Mm -hmm. right where they're they're well i have to be more loving to put up with my husband's indiscretions or his hostile or angry attitudes or his abuse Mm -hmm. But that's not all encompassing. That's you trying to encompass the world, not you per se, but the the, the woman I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. So all encompassing, I say love includes you. So that goes why I say God is because if God is quote unquote everything, of which we are, you know, one aspect, but then love to me is the energy that is fundamentally our nature, but it is acceptance with a capital a Mm. right i i say one of my quotes i say anything but love is abuse Hmm. which is a bold statement and for a lot of people may be shocking but like if people look at their childhood you know we often equate abuse with something that's really quite horrific like you know it's hitting it's sexual it's you know real misdemeanors but to me even neglecting a child not listening to a child, telling a child to go to their room, shaming a child. Like these are the absence of love and therefore their expressions of abuse. Obviously there's a continuum, right? Like physically hitting a kid, punching a kid, whipping a kid, belting, you know, versus just you're busy on the phone and your child is trying to get your attention. Sure. A lot of people are going to say, hey, like I'm trying to talk to somebody. But from the perspective of the child, there is a form of neglect, yes. right? And that can be addressed and balanced out in other ways. So anyway, long-winded answer to your question, but to me, love is, it's our true nature. It hmm. is who we are in the absence of the idea of ourselves, in the absence of the illusion of inadequacy and security and scarcity. What hmm. we're left with is the essence of love itself, which is all embracing. Hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah. So the pre-intellectual self is, yeah. we live to love. We come from love. We live yeah. for love. Um, yeah. yeah it, because to me, love is the personified experience of the power of unity. Mm. Right. There's so many overlaps with, with God and this, the, the terminology. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. And so God love is, love, is what right? I, as a sovereign being, through the apparent illusion of independence or separation which is illusory Mm -hmm. that is my 
experience when I ironically recognize the illusion of separation and that I'm not actually separate. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that so, cool? Yeah, it's funny how language falls apart in these domains. It just can't, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. This this ec ecstatic nature of love, I guess, like you're always reaching beyond yourself and your own narratives. And um, it's really interesting. Okay, hard pivot on the question. Sure. What is power? So I think this is a word that yeah, I have pretty strong views about this, that I think the word is misframed often and popular cultural discourse, modern cultural discourse. Yeah. I, I get the sense you might as well, but it certainly seems to be portrayed more negatively um, or at least almost exclusively negatively when there's definitely, in my opinion, a very uh, positive aspect to, to power. Yeah. So I, I'd love to hear, I've heard you speak of empowerment and things like this. Yeah. So what does that yeah. mean, mean to you? I think, first of all, to your point, that power is misconstrued like many things, right? Like um, like love, like freedom, like all the things that we like to discuss. And so mm -hmm. power, currently, the current, um, not even definition, but I think the interpretation of power is something to do with the energy of force. Mm -hmm. right? Like I am powerful in the way that I can command the attention of a room or I'm in charge it's still power in its current iteration still appeals to the domain of separation. Mm -hmm. I've never said that before in my life, but I, that to me resonates, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the current iteration. Power in its authentic sense to me is the absence of the illusion of separation, mm. which we could equally say real power, I think it's two pronged. Power is the absence of the energy of resistance, mm -hmm. right? Meaning that most people from, from the perspective of separation, then there is born with that inextricably connected two sides of the same coin. If, if my experience of life is separation, then I have no choice but to try and survive whatever it is I'm separate from. Right. There's no power there. That becomes a forceful endeavor. Right. Conversely, when I'm no longer a separate entity, there's nothing to survive. And hence, I'm actually standing in power <laughs> because the absence of resistance is actually saying, and it's one of my favorite quotes is, can I be with this? Now, power can be with, mm -hmm. you know, fill in the blank. Can I be with the fact that my wife is upset? Can I be with the fact that I lost money on the stock market? Can I be with the fact that whatever's going on, my football team lost or mm -hmm. You know, it's the absence of a reaction that is based in any of the buckets of inadequacy, insecurity, or scarcity. So power really is the capacity to be with life as it is. Hmm. That's the one prong. The other prong is recognizing that because I'm not separate, that I'm a co-creator in life. And so my power lends to the creation of whatever it is going on in the world. So I'm not, it's just by being a separate entity, not only do I not, have to force myself which is the survival mechanism there can also be the admission of you know irresponsibility like well got nothing to do with me uh -huh. so you're equally speaking to the narrative that i'm a separate entity and i have no say in the stake of the world so to me there's two aspects both of which only arise once we recognize the illusion of separation and we step into the truth of unity which is 
I am held by the whole, for which reason there's mm. nothing to resist. But because I'm part of the whole, I equally have a stake in what happens. Mm. How's that? <laughs> Man, no, that's excellent. That makes a lot of sense. This, the separateness implies walls, right? Or, yeah. or and then that is a gradient across which resistance is inevitable in a way, right? Because unavoidable and reality is continuous and interconnected. You erect some wall, well, it's just going to yeah. undergo resistance, basically. Yeah. And so that is an energy inefficient approach because you're creating resistance where there's where there's meant to be flow, I guess. Yeah. And so that would make sense that it's disempowering even from a purely physics standpoint, like you're inhibiting flow. Yeah. And whereas unity would be the opposite, right? Unity is empowering because it's bringing down the walls and unifying. So it's fascinating. Connected to source, yes. right? And this is why I use cancer as an analogy in, in physiology, and we won't get into it, but like a cancerous cell is no longer in, in harmony with the intelligence of the body. Mm -hmm. its, its environment has become sufficiently hostile, which happens with all of the shit that people have put in their bodies, you know, from GMOs to carcinogen, mm -hmm. glyphosates and toxic foods and da-da-da. That's one aspect. The real toxicity, as far as I'm concerned, is mindset when we're in a state of dis-ease, the absence of ease, mm -hmm. and the cascades of epinephrines and adrenalines and cortisols in our system that are not a harmonious sort of breeding ground for cells to replicate through the intelligence of the body. So the cancerous cell, now under the illusion that it's separate, will do whatever the fuck it has to to survive. Right. Wow. No different on the micro level as we're now speaking to the macro, which is a human being growing up in a hostile environment where there's a lot of abuse in the home. They are going to run away. Mm -hmm. And they're going to replicate, if they can, with like-minded cells right. that are quote-unquote disempowered. And any power that they seem to have as a gang is always based in force and fear. It's not, yeah. it's not based in love and unity. So yeah. it is the illusion of it is it's it's no different than a you know, even on a computer like RAM, right? Versus like deep memory, like yeah. you know, the RAM that you can have 16, 32 gigs versus you can have terabytes, right? So the the it's are you tapped into the source? Are you tapped into the actual flow of right. consciousness or universal uh, energy? Or are you operating as this entity that you believe to be separate from the whole trying to make it? And that's right. most people's experience. That's so interesting. And then I, I like that you analogize it to a gang because it's mm -hmm. one of the ways we describe government is just the biggest gang in the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, institution <laughs> yeah. operating from these maladaptive, perhaps even self-destructive uh, narratives or paradigms and yeah. at different Absolutely. scales, right? The individual scale, collective. Okay. Super fascinating. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to, there's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> and I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, 
you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. I have to ask you about anger. Okay. Um, this is one that I, I've struggled with in my own life and uh, typically yeah. related to just inefficiency, I guess, I, or an incompetence. Yeah, probably the latter. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a bit of a, a perfectionist, I guess. I I've yeah. kind of pushed myself hard and pushed those around me hard at times. And yeah. Um, and you posted this great clip. This was on your Instagram on October 16, and it was titled The Truth About What Upsets You. And we've already kind of been touching on this a bit, but you know, you said something to the effect that we're not victims of what happened, but we are victims of our perception or our framing or our theory of what happened, something like that, yeah. where yeah. it's not the event itself, it's the perception of it. And uh, I'm reminded by, there's a Marcus Aurelius quote, he says something like, all perturbation lies in perception. So yeah, again, it's the story, not the event itself. So how, how do you create that distance between your reaction and the situation. And I, I feel like I do a really good job at this in most cases, but there are times where my anger can just grab a hold of me and it's typically related yeah. to the things I mentioned earlier. So, um, yeah, how, how do you navigate someone in dealing with anger? No, amazing. So even there's a couple of things that you shared that are quite telling for me. So how do you manage that is by understanding the genesis of the reaction in the first place, hmm. right? So it's a reverse engineering process. 
So if Robert's getting angry, that is a stimulus and response event, right? Mm -hmm. Stimulus is somebody does something that you don't approve of, mm -hmm. triggers your own perspective of how things should be, which is resistance to reality. It's got mm -hmm. nothing to do with love. And so you're actually in a relationship with yourself about how you, mighty old us, the ego, thinks life should be, including others, right? So when you break it down like that, you start to see the audacity of that particular specter. Mm -hmm. The anger itself is a survival mechanism. Anger is really just on top of a deeper feeling of hurt. So when people understand it's it's a coping strategy for somebody who fundamentally at a deeper level is in pain. Hmm. So there's something going on within you where you were hurt. Now, your language also gave something away. You said, I'm kind of a, per a perfectionist. Hmm. Now, that's an inaccurate statement. I'm not denying that you have tendencies towards perfectionism. Mm -hmm. But as long as you say, I'm a perfectionist, then you've nailed your foot to the floor and either at times when things go the way you like, you could feel, as I said, the pride, or when things don't go your way you like, you feel guilt. But you're always going to just be managing the narrative and the way mm. that you've defined yourself. Mm. Right? So that's a subtle but important recognition about your own walking conversation is that, no, you're not a perfectionist, but based on your conditioning of your childhood and the events you went through, you learned the mechanism of perfectionism Mm -hmm. which to me is a coping mechanism for deeper fears of inadequacy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you may start to recall events where your dad probably or a teacher or your mom pointed out insufficiencies in the way you behave, whether it's a sport or academics. And so you adapted the mechanism of trying to do better that eventually over time became the way that things had to be, all of which are really the way that you're trying to uh, garner love and acceptance. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, another thing that came up for me as you were saying that is, and I heard this on a recent podcast, but the danger of attaching your accomplishments to your identity. Yeah. And um, you, you're not your accomplishments basically. But when I first heard that, I was like, wow, that really, that's hard for me to pull those two apart because I think I yeah. do identify a lot with what I do. Yeah, um, because you're not understanding value. This is mm -hmm. why when athletes retire, when mothers, you know, kids leave the nest and they go into depression and it's often coinciding with biological changes like menopause. And, you know, so then they lose any sense of self-worth because they equated their worth with mothering as, a, mm -hmm. as an activity, mm -hmm. right? And one that should be revered. I mean, it's probably the hardest job on the planet. But, you know, in the mm -hmm. absence sure. of someone to mother, they misidentify their value as now suddenly becoming compromised. Right. So likewise for you, if you're, if you're collapsing your worth with your accomplishments, then it's almost like perfectionism is the prescription to try and sustain value. Because mm. hmm. you're under the impression that if you don't do things right, you're not going to get value. Why is that important to you? Or uh, outcomes, why is that important to you? Because that is a direct correlation to my perception of my worth. And then you superimpose that on others, which is where that becomes, you know, now that's a toxic environment sometimes for other people to be in because your superimposition of your own inadequacy onto others under the assumption that they also have to behave in a certain way for me to be okay is the biggest lie on the planet. Mm -hmm. And it's got nothing to do with love. So if Robert's under the impression that he needs other people, like you said, it can be hard on others. What you're saying is 
albeit again through no fault of yours, but now you can start to obtain responsibility, which is where power comes back in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because otherwise it's the way it has to be. There's no choice versus right. when you include awareness, now you get a choice. The ability to respond. <laughs> yeah, so being responsible, exactly, yeah. versus yeah. reactionary. Reactionary is something you've done before. Now, most of these patterns got established when we're so young. Oftentimes we forget the... the the trigger or the catalyst for where we started to develop the feeling of inadequacy then over time became your form of anger, which as I said, is really just a reflection of the deeper hurt, the hurt being what? You didn't do what you expected of yourself or others didn't do what you expected of them, usually. Mm -hmm. So what you're actually saying at a subtle level, your brain is trying to convince you that you're not okay with the way things are. Now mm. you're in direct conflict with reality and that hurts. <laughs> it always hurts to not be aligned with reality yeah you okay and the subtler subtext of that is you're saying you know how it should be now just think about the audacity of that right it's comical i didn't get the memo that you're in charge of the universe and how things <laughs> are supposed to unfold <laughs> right right that's a great way to debug that ego yeah. i guess okay you're you're these were you're bringing up some words to me that are very mysterious Okay. I think about them a lot. The words worth. Yeah. The words value. Yeah. What what is the deeper essence of these words? I mean, I um I know the word worth, for instance, comes from I think it was ancient Greek arete, this RT word that was uh -huh. you know, it's related to excellence and um strength and fortitude. Uh, yeah. And it seems to be something very fundamental, maybe like on par with love, maybe not quite that deep. seems yeah. like love is the deepest, but what do these words mean in, in their most essential form? Um, again, I think for or I me, should say, what do the ideas behind the words represent? Sorry, just I'm yeah. trying to get to the essence of what you mean, but when you say those words. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, we could say to, you know, you kind of touched on this before, you know, everything that we're trying to elucidate, experience discover mm -hmm. is prior to words and therein lies yes. the issue right like yes. i i use this analogy i say like trying to describe who we really are using words is like me trying to describe silence to you by talking about it exactly yes <laughs> yeah. wisdom is silent so, yeah so prior to language worth and value to me is sort of somewhat synonymous we could say they're bedfellows but with slightly different iteration for the sake of simplicity I, i'm going to say they point to the same thing they may manifest differently but to me they are the inherent value and worth is who we are it's the recognition of ourself big capital s right not who i think i am as peter crone but what is the essence of life itself that gives rise to this human being We'll use an analogy. It might help people. In your house right now, you're looking at a computer, desktop, laptop. You know, your phone is near you, might be being charged. Certainly downstairs, you're going to have a fridge or across the way, you're going to have a TV. And then there's going to be a hairdryer or something in the house and da, da, da. So there's a, there's a myriad of different forms. But the one thing that they all have in common in terms of their life is electricity. Hmm. Yeah, you don't see that. You see the byproduct of its impact. Hmm. So likewise, for me, when we look at soul, spirit, their words pointing to that which is sort of 
esoteric, ephemeral, that which we can't actually see, but nonetheless is who we are. Mm. If I died right in front of you, him from in, you know, be inconvenient for the podcast. But, <laughs> You'd be going out of the bang, though. <laughs> yeah, everything that people like might equate with Peter Crone in terms of my looks, my appearance, my style, my size, my body, my height, that's all right here. And if someone knew how to dissect the brain and they were able to tap into memories, like we could say that the brain to a certain degree is like, well, here's kind of a history and an archive of his life. But where's the real me? Where did I go? You didn't see me get up and leave. Right, right, right. <laughs> so the eternal sort of pulling of the plug that is invisible, that to me is what we're, what we're, we're investigating here. And that quality, just by virtue of the fact that it can animate life itself, has inherent value. Right. So love, to me, value, power, freedom, worth. These are the inextricable qualities of the essence of who we are. Now, as humans, we've articulated those particular words to look a certain way. Like spirituality has now got a face. Mm -hmm. value has got a face so as soon as it becomes personified it's not it right so yeah. that to me is real worth and value is they are inherent aspects of our true nature and even if we just look at it like purely from the perspective of planet earth and our population close to 8 billion people there's no other you on the planet and that has got nothing to do with what you do, how many, you know, Bitcoin you own or how much money in your bank account or how many followers on Instagram. No, there's just you, period. Yeah. Wow. And so based on pure mathematics, you're one in eight billion, which is why I always found it comical when people say, oh, my God, you're one in a million. It's like, well, then you're saying there's like eight thousand <laughs> iterations. Of it. That's really not that special. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's fucking great. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. So, wow, I like that. Some form of existential electricity something like that yeah it's and that's why these conversations are just so fun because we can never act fully articulate it yes and you right. will know it because we are it right and in the absence of thinking that i am worthless or that i am not enough which then gives rise to the compensatory skills that we equate with worth of work hard and get that corner office and get a ton of followers ideally become famous that whole narrative is never where worth is found because it's built on the assumption that worth is not inherent. Right. And so right. it's the dissolution of all of that. That's why one of my catchphrases to people, I say, I don't solve problems, I dissolve. Dissolve, not solve. That's great. Wow. Okay, so <clears throat> you post some excellent quotes on your Instagram uh, along with some really good clips. One of your posts, you wrote, the sooner we can leave our past behind, the sooner we will discover the freedom that is always available right now. Yeah. So in the continuing theme of this show so far, I'd like to ask you another elemental question. Sure. What is freedom? What does freedom mean to you? Um. Wow. You, it's it's such a beautiful complex and yet simple arena isn't it like so for me fundamental freedom i have different quotes for it one that comes to mind is true freedom is having nothing to hide and nothing to prove hmm. 
And so in lay terms, we could also say that freedom is when I am no longer a victim of anything, hmm. which equally would tie in beautifully to what we're discussing about, then I am powerful or I am power itself, right? Because if I'm no longer at the mercy of anything, that doesn't denote that I should not be at the effect of anything. You know, my dad going to work and dying, there was a response, which was primal and inbred in terms of being a mammal, which was the missing, the grief, the sadness. Mm -hmm. But for many years there, I was caught in the narrative of loss, which now has got nothing to do with the present moment. That's me constantly reliving my history or as the quote said, you know, like if I'm not letting go of my past. Mm -hmm. So to me, freedom is, I guess, ultimate freedom is the, the, the removal of the misidentification with the idea of myself. Hmm. The dropping, the dropping of the narrative. Yeah. That I'm no longer caught in the, the illusion that I am this conversation and this meat suit. <laughs> right. And that to me is where the majority of suffering, we could actually argue all of suffering. That's the genesis of suffering is the misidentification with the stories in my head and the idea of who I am from my nationality to my religion and everything in between. And then the fact that I am in this, I mean, albeit miraculous meat suit. Mm -hmm. that's who i am so freedom is the relinquishment of all of that while simultaneously integrating it such that i can still enjoy the experience of what it is to be human hmm. so it's not the complete it's not the complete renunciation of the experience of being human but rather it is the relinquishment of of the person who thinks it is the renunciation of the renuncier. Is that even right. a word? Right. right. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you. <laughs> it's yeah. So it's the renunciation of the idea of somebody who owns anything, including my own physicality. Right. So you, obviously, this is the deeper spiritual, essential freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you arrive at this state of being or mode of being, I guess. Um, yes by dropping all of the artifice, all of the story and narrative and just yeah. being present in the truth of what you actually are as a living, breathing, animated meat suit. Who, who is every experience I've ever been looking at for looking for like one of my more philosophical quotes. I say the seeker is the sort. Hmm. S-O-U-T-H-T. Oh. So once we realize I am everything that I'm looking for, in terms of the experience of oneself, like we currently collapse with, no, I want to find, you know, a right, the right partner or more money. Or, mm -hmm. But if you go up to someone on the street, let's just say this, and you say, hey, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a genie. I can give you one wish. What do you want? For the most part, people are going to say something around money. And usually because huh. it's a, an old adage, it's like $1 million, you know, like, yeah. which is, you know, <laughs> doesn't get you too much this day and age, right? Yeah. I mean, it does and it doesn't, right? But if we were then to ask and continue the conversation and say, have you ever had a million dollars? I could probably say like 100% of the people are going to say no. Right? <laughs> so then it begs the investigation of like, well, then how do you know that's what you want? 
So there has to be some preconceived idea of what that represents, which is pointing to the fact that they've already generated the experience they're under the impression they'll get by having something they've never had before. Right. But then the experience is already existing prior to the product or the item that they think they want that would give rise to it. Otherwise, they wouldn't know to want for it. Right. So even in that interaction, it, it postulates, it points to the fact that, well, you are the experience you think that'll give you. Because if you gave someone a million bucks and you put them under a staircase and locked the door, then based on their declaration of what they want, there should be joy. Mm -hmm. But that's not what they wanted. They want what the money, they thought the money would give them. In this case, we could say financial security, a sense of freedom, right? Mm -hmm. It comes back to, I can do whatever I want. I can quit mm -hmm. my job, right? So what they're actually saying they want is, comes back to all of these key words, which is freedom, a sense of joy, a sense of power, a sense mm -hmm. of love. But they're under the impression that those items are to be found exogenously, they're outside of themselves, and they're in the future. Mm -hmm. One day when? <laughs> so now you understand the rat race that is the human sort of the, the imperative of every human wants to survive hopefully long enough so that you get to the illusion of what you think you're going to find in the future, which you never actually get to. Yeah. These are all fabrications of the monkey mind. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Wow. Well, I, I'm okay. I'm fascinated by this. Maybe there's a convergence point here with this. You're describing like this spiritual freedom being almost the discovery of your inner truth. I don't mean yeah. some subjective version of truth, just like the actual truth of your existential yeah. being. Yes. And uh, so freedom and truth have always seemed very closely related to me. And I've That's seen it, seen it through a lot of different um, lenses, I guess, like for instance, in economics, it's free markets that generate prices, generates a pricing system. Mm -hmm. And there's a saying on uh, in wall street, like price is truth, right? Whatever the thing is trading for, that's its mm -hmm. worth, right? You could say that is its worth. Talking about the the commodity, not the individual, yeah. obviously. But yeah. um, it, there's some a very fundamental informational value to a, a free market generated price. And so again, you have it's absolute freedom generating the most truthful economic nerve signal you could imagine. So that's just yeah. one lens I've identified this relationship. It's been many others, but. Is there is there a connection there? And if so, what is what's the relationship between freedom and truth? I think there is. I think they're synonymous. I think they're bedfellows, the same as acceptance, right? Um, and love. I, I think they're all. It's like the suite of you know s u i t e of soul based qualities, hmm. right? So if we were to look at it that way, they're all aspects, but on the same diamond, right? They're all facets, faces of. Mm. So truth and freedom to me, they are synonymous because think about the antithesis, right? Oftentimes we get to the truth through the negation of something. Like even in mm -hmm. Buddhism, they say neti neti, right? Mm -hmm. Not this, not that. And it's the yeah. process of removal that reveals that which, like we spoke to earlier, can't actually be delineated in language because it's prior to language. Right. So what would be the antithesis of truth? fabrication lies pretense right yeah. so why is a lie then not free well because it's something you have to sustain you have to oh, yes. support right there's no freedom there 
Think about just even in an everyday circumstance where there's infidelity in a relationship and in a marriage. There is a fundamental lie that is occurring in that relationship. And for that reason, there's no freedom. Yes. So truth, which we could also equate on the subjective level as authenticity, vulnerability, transparency. Mm -hmm. As I said, that you asked me earlier, freedom, what did I say? Freedom is when you've got nothing to hide and nothing to prove. Right. The nothing Same. to hide speaks to the component of truth. Yeah. That's right. That, that reminds me, uh, he Hegel, I think, may have been Heidegger. Truth is unconcealedness. Yeah. Total transparency. Oh. And when you have something to hide, it's because there's something at stake. And it's based on fear. Like, look at a kid. Like, what, as I said earlier, it's an adaptation. Lying is a survival mechanism. Right. When little Johnny, the first time that unbeknownst to him, he didn't know that the cookies on the kitchen counter in the glass jar were, you know, off limits. Yeah. <laughs> but he sure found out about it the first time he was seen. At that moment, the sheer fear, depending on the degree of the discipline, you know, yeah. like Johnny could be in laughter and then fine. Or usually it's like, no, you can't do this. This is da 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 da. And then that being whose primordial imperative is to survive. And the only way they're going to survive is if they belong to the tribe and the gang. Because yeah. right? if you're excommunicated, if you're kicked out of the gang into the jungle, you're not going to make it. Right. So the moment that that child feels the discipline and the abuse and the hostility and just the tone, they now know, holy shit, don't do that again. Now, based on the certainly the proclivity of a child to be immensely curious and to want to explore, they're going to do it again. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, right. Right. So now, how do I cope with that? I just have to lie. Right. Because my survival's at stake. So now you start to see the 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 insidious levels of survival that we are seeing, obviously, in the world today, where whether it's pharma, governments, politicians, like yes. the lies become increasingly complex where you right. enroll other people in your lie. You pay people, you know, celebrities, especially people of perceived worth, which we've just completely deconstructed. Yes. But people think, oh, person in a lab coat, celebrity I watch on TV, they carry value, I'll believe them. But the pretense is just an extension of the fact that they've been paid, manipulated by yeah. a deeper system of fear which has got its own lies for its own self-preservation. Wow. And so now you've got this insidious and abhorrent system that is all based on the absence of truth. Wow. Even to the point that you have to silence people who are telling the truth. Right. Yeah. Right. You were just, yeah. When you brought up excommunication, I was thinking of that, the cancel culture, why that is such an yeah. attack on a, on a primal level psychologically perhaps, but yeah. um, you, I think you also just perfectly summarized the fiat shitstorm that we're in, right? It's, yeah when the money is fake and it can be printed out of thin air and you can buy whatever narrative or mainstream media influence or propaganda machine that you need, yeah. the world is a wash in bullshit. Like, like we're seeing yeah. today. And, um, yeah, uh, hopefully conversations like this are somewhat of a counterforce to that, but man, it, it's an uphill battle. It certainly appears that way. Right. And again, because the powers, that currently exists, which are based in fear, scarcity, and adequacy, it's a forceful nature, mm -hmm. right? Like, so meaning they have to 
recruit more and more fake energy to try and sustain the facade. Yes. But eventually that has to collapse to go back to freedom and truth because our nature is that. And yes. so it goes against the grain of who we are and why we're here to sustain the facade that is the antithesis of what we're here to discover. Yes. Eventually, the couple where the husband or the wife have been cheating for multiple years, perhaps the majority of a marriage, been married for 20 years and infidelity has been rife for 15. Eventually, you know, the expression I use is the truth will out. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and that, it might be super uncomfortable for the period that it's not. But I feel that this crescendo that we're experiencing right now is the birthing of that pimple. You know, <laughs> it is the dissolution of all of the systems that are based in corruption and fear. Because even those that we look at as the perpetrators are themselves the ones in suffering. Right. Yes. It's just much more... Yeah, they're trying to trying to control the circumstances, as you said much earlier. Yeah, is you know again, I think there's a post somewhere on my Instagram. I say you know control is a byproduct of fear and or inadequacy. And you know I'm paraphrasing myself terribly, but it was a good quote, basically pointing to the fact that control is a byproduct of fear. Yes. You know, and you're only going to have that if you think there's something inadequate or missing. But that is a negation of self. It's the misidentification with the narratives of the ego. Yes. And, and that's the ultimate form of addiction, right? Because this is where, whether it's a substance or a society, you're under the impression that you need both. Right. Because you haven't discovered the true boundlessness of your inherent nature. I think it was Buddha, the three things that you cannot long hide the sun, the moon, and the truth. Mm -hmm. And in that interim that it is hidden, it's very energy inefficient. You know, you tell one yeah. lie, you've, you've created this fork of the narrative reality. And all of a sudden, if someone asks a question that, you know, critiques that lie, you have to defend that lie with a lie. It gets very complex and people get lost in these webs and it's, yeah. Yeah, certainly seems to be uh, a real problem. Like it's coming to some type of climax, uh, as you're describing here. Um, yeah, at least that's my, I could say, hope and equally interpretation, because the only illusion is time, right? Like that's mm -hmm. the funny thing for all <laughs> of us. That's a good quote right there. The yeah. only illusion is time. Yeah, because when you collapse time, which is one of my favorite topics to discuss, then everything has already happened. You sit in a movie theater, going to watch a film with a partner, a girlfriend, a buddy or whatever, or by yourself. The illusion is you're watching something unfold in front of you, which is your subjective experience. But the movie is already cut. It's in the can in the back of the movie, in the hmm. back of the theater. It's finished. Hmm. So all that's happening is we're using the medium of time so that we can process something. Hmm. Right, which is why in the matrix, you know, like when he's getting these downloads like at lightning speed. It's like, I know Kung Fu. I know how to fly a helicopter, you know, whatever it is. Like yeah. we're under the impression that these things take time, hard work, patience, all of this. And I'm not denying that on the human experience on right. this sort of 3D level, but really it is an illusion, right? 
because these words, this conversation, we could have start at one level have already happened. We just, neither of us knew about it. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And actually to the person listening, that really is a truth. Yeah. But it's new for them. But, the, you know, could be two months old conversation. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, that's all everywhere and always perspectival, right? It's always a matter of perspective. And yeah, wow, uh, man, so much good stuff there. All right. We have to talk about the nature of addiction. Okay. And last time we, I, I, we didn't mention this earlier. You and I had a zoom call. I don't know what, a couple of months ago for about an hour, yeah, just, yeah. just private informal. We should have recorded it, but we didn't. Um, <laughs> and you provided this excellent quote on the nature of addiction, which I hope you can recall because I don't have it in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. And yeah. I, uh, very, very much have, have thought about the nature of addiction and how it is. It seems like humanity is addicted to the printing of money through kind of this economic lens yeah. and the history of money rabbit hole that I've been going down. So, and yeah. the quote that you dropped was so on point, um, not to put you on the spot, but uh, do you recall? Yeah. It's my favorite was. quote that I came up with about addiction. I say, you can never get enough of something that almost works. You can never get enough of something that almost works. That is, I swear that's fiat currency in a nutshell. We just always think we can print a little more. It's just like a drug addict or an alcoholic. It's it's spot on. It almost works, but you can never get enough of it because it only almost works. Now, this is why. I'll give you an example that's very you know, day to day that people could relate to versus a lot of people might not have experience with substances. But one of my clients, very wealthy family, her dad had given her the sort of the uh, opened credit card, do as you wish. And her form of quote unquote addiction was retail therapy. Mm. And because there was a lot of wealth involved, she could get the best of the best, which whatever that is based on, you know, what you said earlier about the truth value currently, right? right? Mm -hmm. And there's a sale price and then there's whatever. Yes. But the point is she could buy nice stuff whenever she wanted. And I said to her, there aren't enough clothes in the world to compensate for your belief of inadequacy. That's the addiction. So why addiction is addiction is because it's being driven by something that is fundamentally a lie and you can't overcome a lie you can only see it for what it is. Hmm. If who you are is I'm not enough, then your behavioral adaptations, your thoughts, feelings, actions have to be an extension of that narrative. Hmm. And consequently, I'm not enoughness can manifest in a myriad of ways, right? From perfectionism of form, like the guy that has to, or the girl that has to go to the gym five, six, seven days a week because they're trying to compensate for their version of not enoughness to the person who works, you know, a hundred plus hours a week to make enough money because he's going to prove his dad wrong, that his B grade that one year and his dad came down on him. He's like, screw him. I'm going to show him that I'm enough, hmm. but that will never suffice. Why? Because the mechanism that is the driver of the behavior is itself fundamentally an illusion. Hmm. And that is the addiction. Hmm. Is it is it always a belief of inadequacy that the self is somehow inadequate or not enough? No, and it's not a belief. It's more fundamental. A belief would belong to the identity. Mm -hmm. The identity believes certain things. Right. The identity is something. 
It's not that I believe I'm not enough. I am not enough. Right. That's a bit important. Yes. The person who is not enough might believe that they have to work hard. They might believe they should get in shape and go to the gym. Do you see? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so it's not necessarily just the inadequacy. The three main buckets I speak to are inadequacy, insecurity, and scarcity. So inadequacy is the I'm not enough. Insecurity might be the primary experience of not feeling safe in your environment. Mm -hmm. That equally can give rise to an addiction in a different way, right? It might be that I need companionship. I can't be by myself, mm -hmm. which could manifest with sexual addictions. It could manifest with always needing to have a partner. But that's, a, again, a compensation for the fact that I don't like to be alone. Why don't you like to be alone? Well, because fundamentally, maybe as a kid, they were left alone a lot where they felt unsafe. Mm -hmm. So that could be another expression of the addiction that manifests in the outside world, but really is still an extension of the, the, the core identity that somebody has based on their childhood. Hmm. Wow. It, so this, um, and I think I shared this with you previously. Um, I got this from my conversation with John Ravakey, who's... Uh, okay. Yeah, he's cool. Yeah, great guy, philosopher, cognitive scientist, yeah. but he describes the nature of addiction as this reciprocal narrowing process mm -hmm. where, you know, the guy has a bad day at work. So he goes home and he has a drink. The yeah. drink causes him to sleep in too late and maybe has a slightly worse day at work the next day. Yeah. And that causes them to have two or three drinks the next night. And the process just, you get into this vicious yeah. cycle of, of, amplifying feedback but with negative consequences yes and um that always struck me as incredibly similar to what you see with the printing of money right they print a little bit of money to try and uh i don't know i guess maybe it's a belief of inadequacy right they think things are bad we'll print a little money and give the economy a little kick get people moving again but yeah. the, the cost of that there's an economic hangover effectively it causes the misallocation of capital and yeah these other things that makes the next recession worse. So you need to print more money. Yes. And in, indeed that's the vicious loop that leads to hyperinflation. So there's a major structural parallel or dynamical parallel perhaps between these two phenomena. Yeah. And um, I don't like where, where would we start to fix that? Is this, I mean, clearly there's like an economic science component, but there's also, is this a matter of fixing or empowering individuals maybe to overcome addictive personalities would help if you got, if you did that at a grassroots level, that would help manifest uh, less addiction to say the printing of money, for instance, like how do you think if there's the similar, similar dynamics, how do you think we would approach them um, to resolve them? So I think first to go to John's, you know, sort of the narrowing perspective, like mm -hmm. I, I concur, I would put it slightly different. To me, it's accumulative. Mm. So in Ayurveda, which is the healing arm of yoga, similar to Chinese medicine, it's based on elements, which is part of my work. There are six stages of disease. And the first stage of disease, or we could say dis-ease, the absence of ease, is accumulation. Mm -hmm. So to your example, the guy goes to work, has a bad day. That's an accumulation to me of perhaps his deeper narrative that he's a loser. No one gives a shit about him. So now he's accumulated more evidence to the perspective of him being inadequate or 
insufficient, right? Mm. And so his means of trying to escape his own suffering based on the narrative that he probably heard from his father and high school coach and whatever is to have a drink. Mm. So now he's accumulated toxicity in his system too, which means that his capacity to rejuvenate overnight and sleep well and feel vital when he gets up is now compromised. He's got the absence of energy, which is the accumulation of fatigue and heaviness and lethargy, mm. which then leads to a less productive day at work. And it's the vicious cycle that leads the I'm not enough to the streets, gangs, and then blah, 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 mm. meth right. Right? right? So subtle difference, but I would say it's more of an accumulative effect. Mm -hmm. The accumulation in this case being what we would argue is deleterious or negative, right? The accumulated evidence of nobody loves me, the accumulated evidence of I'm a loser, mm -hmm. the accumulation of the toxins that we put in our body, the alcohol, the weed, the cigarettes, whatever it is, the accumulation of medicine, no, not medicine, drugs, because it's not medicine, but no. pharma products, you know, that creates no. more toxicity in the system. Mm -hmm. So that to me is why it's a dissolution process. It's the undoing. But the ultimate undoing, the rug that is the quintessential pull from, you know, beneath everyone's feet is the narrative of I'm not something. Hmm. Right? And until we get to that, we're always going to see the extensions of its uh, reflection in society, whether you're hmm. an actor who fundamentally thought you weren't loved and then you found attention like a Robin Williams or a Jim Carrey who they realize, oh, what if I'm a clown and I'm funny, I get love and attention. Mm. But as we see with Rob, Jim's done a ton of work and he's subsequently transcended his narrative, but like Robin never did, right? And no. so through alcohol and whatever, he to ultimately to his demise, because again, that was the ultimate addiction, which he could never get enough attention. Even though millions of people loved him and he had millions of dollars, it means nothing if the fundamental foundation upon which your identity is built is a negation of self. Wow. So until that gets reconciled, this is why, to me, this dimension of, albeit at times a real pain in the ass, is the best place for us to reconcile our fears, because we're going to be consistently bombarded with the reflection of what we've, we're here to actually reconcile. Hmm. So to sit here and try and, you know, calculate what we can do to rectify, it's, it's too late. Like, and it's like, here's a, here's a metaphor I often use. Imagine a still pond, you throw in a pebble and you get the sort of proverbial ripples. Fiat economy and societal like inflation and all of that, that's like the ninth, 10th ripple. Right. We're like, oh, but how do we sort that out? So, <laughs> well, what was prior to that? You know, uh -huh. the people in office who want to sustain their positions because they're power hungry because... So they're going to manipulate whether it be elections and cheating or they're going to pump out money to try and placate people mm. and throw them 1200 bucks or because they want to sustain power. OK, but why do they want to sustain power? Why are they in positions of politics? Well, because if you go back to their childhood and they were picked on or they were mocked or they were bullied. And so they're like, screw that. I'm never going to be in that position again. OK, mm. but then why was that? Well, because they were in a nucleus family where the parents never paid attention. And, other, you know, there, there's a whole cascade of events that leads yeah. to the gong show that we have now as the extension of all of these dysfunctions. And so until such time that we address each person's individual neuroses or their fundamental addiction to their own inadequacies, 
everybody's going to do whatever they have to to survive and compensate. Hmm. You know, it's like I use an analogy again, like looking at pharma and medical system, which is just the sick care system. They make money off people being sick. They have no interest in healing people. Yeah, it's like a pot on the stove and the water is boiling. Right. And the dysfunction is the water's boiling over and eventually it's getting on the floor and then it's been there for a while and it creates mold. So your doctor who's been trained in, you know, pathology, in this case, boiling water is like, well, no, no, no. We exactly know what you need to do. Every Like five times a day, you have to put six ice cubes into the pot. And you solve your problem, but you've got to make sure you do it because otherwise it's, it's like, you know, people on beta blockers and hypertension medication, like, Mm-hmm. oh yeah sure you know you take the medication then your blood pressure looks good but as soon as you come off it it's back so nothing was resolved that's right. that's the definition of the madness of the sick care system yeah so what i'm pointing to is no you've got to turn off the flame right right <laughs> what's creating right. the imbalance so all yep. of the like look at like bro versus wade all of these heavy conversations like they're way down the track like there's no resolution there because until you deal with what's at the cause of these outcomes then it's too late (laughs) yes yes we we have to stop hacking at the leaves and go to the root of the matter right and i i like that you i like the pathway you drew out there you know inflationary madness in the fiat world today with a lot of cultural repercussions but what's prior to that politicians right mad with power and corrupt What's prior to that, though, and this is where I'll kind of veer into the economic domain, is what's prior to that is taxation. That's Mm -hmm. inflation and taxation. These are systemized forms of theft, basically. Yeah. And so this is where I think Bitcoin is such an important tool. You could Mm -hmm. boil down the entire value proposition of Bitcoin to it makes theft more expensive. It's more difficult to perpetrate theft. Hard, right. It's possible to inflate. It's hard to tax. It's easy to move. It gives a lot of power to the individual. Yeah. So I, I hear you and I agree with you. There has to be something done at the grassroots individual psychological level. But I do mm-hmm. think systemic change influences psychology as well. Like there's, yeah. they're in feedback, you know? Uh, that's all it is. Soci- what is society? It's an extension of the people in it. Like I work yes. with companies you know, what is a company? A company is just an entity, some legal entity based in some state or country. And then you've got a bunch of people in it. So what makes up a company is a bunch of people and whatever their quote unquote narrative is. Some people declare it as a vision, mission and values. Like they get really specific for the most people, most part, people just think of an idea that's going to generate some income, maybe provide a service. And it's kind of like a little bit of shoot in the dark and let's see how it goes. You know, that's, that's a company. So you expand that to a community, to a con- to a county, to a state, to a country, to a, like, what is the planet, you know? And yeah. society is just a bunch of people with all the the hodgepodge of these narratives. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so I guess you change it, the narratives and yeah, you change society. Yeah, and something about, I guess I would be interested to know what you think about incentives and how those influence psychological and and narrative structure um and i will i want to say something though because you brought up healthcare healthcare is totally fucked today it is sick care right it's um i i every level but i've seen it kind of the back end the business how they act towards people i've seen front end it's just not good and yeah 
of course, there's things that are good and it helps in emergencies and we've had innovations and all this. I don't want to completely throw it out, but it's not yeah. uh, not a, a human flourishing centered business model, let's say. But there are, again, back to the importance of hard money, which we honest money, which is what we often describe Bitcoin as. And this might be a bit of a stretch, but just hear me out. It's kind of theoretical. But if you, in a world where people can hold an honest form of money. So when you're holding, if everyone's holding physical gold, for instance, every successful economic project in the world, every business that is profitable and increases productivity, that increases the value of your savings account, that hard money, because you're basically increasing the purchasing power of money. So this slight difference of like money that depreciates all the time, just switching over to honest money that tends to appreciate over time as we get smarter at doing things. um, I think that can more properly align human incentives where all of a sudden I'm now pulling for your health and success because the richer and the longer you live and the more you succeed, it actually is increasing the purchasing power of my money. Whereas in fiat world, it's always this zero sum game mentality. Like my win is your loss and I I need it now. We can't, engage in yeah. like long-term planning and processes. So I'm very fascinated where I guess you could say incentive systems meet human psychology and how that there's a, there's kind of a top down as much as there's a bottom up, like individuals choosing to engage with you, for instance, and change their yeah. lives and mentality. There's also a systemic kind of force that's, that's more top down that I think yeah. is influential as well. Yeah. I, I listen, I mean, it's sort of the fleecing of the masses, right? You know, yeah. Put the sheep out, let them grow a bit, and then we'll just fleece them and then go again. Kind That's of exactly person. right. Yes. So, I think there's, you know, again, we can look at incentive through a couple of primal lenses, right? Like there's incentive that is empowering, and there's incentive that's disempowering. Is the way I would look at it. Again, so it comes back to these primal qualities of the soul. Mm-hmm. If I'm throwing a check to someone for twelve hundred bucks, to me, that's a disempowering incentive versus if it's like the old adage of giving someone fish versus teaching them to fish right Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. these the tenants have been around for a long time because they resonate right Mm -hmm. so for me why i love the work that i do is because i don't see myself as the source s-o-u-r s-o-u-r-c-e of somebody's experience and work i'm purely the catalyst for them to discover it Versus if I'm the source of someone's survival, which is what the government wants, then that perpetuates the experience of survival, Uh right? It's a reactive response versus a proactive response. Uh It's creative versus reactive is one of the distinctions I teach people. It's like most people are reactive to the life they don't want. Uh And so the incentive there is always a disempowering. It's a survival-based narrative. It's like, hey, we'll help you out, but by (laughs) dissuading you to recognize your own worth and your ability to contribute to society. Conversely, it's the father, the coach, the priest, the teacher, whoever sees the quality in somebody who sometimes it can be Mm. a form of tough love, Mm -hmm. but it is nonetheless, you're extraordinary and I'm not going to settle for anything less. Mm -hmm. 
So in that case, the incentive is one of self-discovery and self-worth versus the other incentive is the absence of discovery and self-worth. It's yeah. like my your worth is a, a byproduct of what I'm doing for you. Right. Which is again dishonest, right? It's a lie. It's this because people do have this natural. Becomes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the good father. The fact that, yeah. It sustains the negations. It sustains the inadequacies, insecurities, and scarcity. You can't do this by yourself, but I'll do it for you. So it's the misappropriation again of power and control. Yes. It's domination and sub submission. And so the good father, the good coach, the good leader, as you're saying, they're basically encouraging love, right? With yeah. love. Might be tough love, but you're you're I, pushing listen, that you person to, to excel. I had a show jumper and I don't know shit about show jumping. And when I was first introduced to her, she was like 28th, 25th in the country. And she wanted to jump for the US at the World Equestrian Games, which is, it flips up with the Olympics. It's like their version of Olympics every four mm -hmm. years. So, mm -hmm. And she wanted to make the team with four people. Like you don't have to be a rocket scientist to recognize if you're currently 25th, 28th, whatever she was, like that's an unlikely proposition. Mm -hmm. So if you heard the way that I spoke to her, you'd be like, wow, that guy is tough, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet she made the team and the US won gold for the first time in 32 years. So it's like that movie Whiplash. Did you ever see that? I don't think so. Oh, it's a great movie. Really mm -hmm. tough to watch at the beginning. But when you see the byproduct, it's pretty moving. So check it out. Whiplash. So yeah, there's love and there's tough love. But what I would assert is being called tough love is love, but it's it's up against the constraints of the boundaries of the idea of an individual who hasn't yet discovered their own worth. Huh. And that requires friction, mm -hmm. not molly cuddling. It would be like me saying, hey, you want to be in shape? Don't worry, I'll go to the gym for you. Right, yes. <laughs> it's so but funny you use that analogy because I said that the idea that printing money can make people more wealthy is the same idea that my workout makes you more fit. Like it's yeah. so totally asinine that it's not even, it's not it's even in the realm of reality. Yeah. Complete ineptitude at the highest yeah. level in office, especially here yes. in the States and all around the world. And we could argue, you know, in a very intentional way. Yes. Because whoever's really pulling the strings, which fundamentally is still the expression of fear, because if yeah. there's any need to control, then people are driven by fear. And that's why eventually it has to collapse. Yeah. It can't be sustained. Why? Because it's a primary lie. Right. Primary lie. It's a great way to put it. Peter, man, this has been one heck of a conversation. One of my personal favorites, I think. Um, I really appreciate the wide ranging dialogue across all the variety of topics and elemental questions. Um, now you are launching or will be launching uh, something soon called the Freedom Community. Yeah, yeah. What is going on with the Freedom Community? Well, it's to your point about society, you know, and the ineptitude and the asinine nature of things. I was like, well, you know, I think it was Buckminster Fuller. He said, you know, don't try and fix the current world. You build a new one, right? And right. so that's what I'm up to. So the Freedom Community is sort of the foray into that exploration of, can we create a society based on these principles that people I are really looking for, which is kindness, love, respect, possibility, aspiration, inspiration. And mm. so I wanted to make it available to everybody. It's a very, you know, nominal monthly fee. And 
Within that, there'll be daily support with like-minded people who are committed to living lives based on freedom, right? Every level, spiritual freedom, mental freedom, emotional freedom, physical freedom, financial freedom. So that's why it's called the Freedom Community. And then I'll also be posting weekly exclusive content with my insights and conversations and quotes. And then we'll even do a monthly Ask Me Anything within the community. So yeah, slowly creating awesome. a new world based on a empowering, inspiring and loving narrative. <laughs> beautiful, quite beautiful. Well, we just got to get you guys uh, using some Bitcoin over there. And I think that will take the freedom game to the next level as it tends to sure. do for, for most of us. I like uh, that possibility. That is that sounds really exciting. Um, where where do we go to find out more about you? To find out more about the freedom community, your work, your thinking. Uh, what sure. are the best places to to do that? Um, the two primary places are just my Instagram, which is just my name, Peter Crone, P E T E R C R O N E, um, and then my website, which is equally my name dot com, So. I am on Facebook. I, I don't typically interact with that much, but I know some people still prefer that platform. So Facebook is out there too. Wonderful. Peter, thank you again, man. This was a banger, as I think they call it in the podcast world. <laughs> yeah, a pleasure. Great to uh, converse with you, my friend. I'm glad we connected and we had this and look forward to um, future powerful conversations about unity, love and freedom. As do I. Thank you again.